What's up, everyone? On today's episode of the Mishmash Podcast, I want to explore the world of youth sports through a few different lenses. If you've listened to any of my previous episodes, then you know that the paths that I've taken in my life have been anything but straight, and the one that led to my interest in sports is no different. As a child, I was incredibly introverted and always fearful of failure. To say I was a nervous kid would be an understatement, and because of that, I was terrified of the idea of participating in any competitive sports. I was already being picked on for being an awkward, skinny, nerdy kid, so the last thing that I wanted to do was offer up any more material. I distinctly remember when my parents asked me if I wanted to play Little League, and me nearly having a coronary. I envisioned myself striking out at the plate every time, bobbling fly balls and flat-out missing catches at first base. We somehow agreed that I did need to do something outside of the house, but the thought of playing baseball was way too much for me to handle. My uncle was involved with the jiu-jitsu program, and so I wound up enrolling there. It was great because it was something active, it would serve to build some self-confidence, and in theory, it might help with the bullying. It didn't, but I still got a lot out of it, and in some respects, it paved the way for me to get involved with basketball down the road. My relationship with sports in general was complicated. I can remember my cousin and a slew of other classmates being pulled out of school to attend the Ranger Stanley Cup Victory Parade back in 1994, and the way their fathers cried when Mickey Mantle died the following year. It all seemed sort of surreal, and at the same time, I just couldn't relate. Part of it was definitely the fact that my dad worked a lot to keep a roof over our heads and food on the table. During my first 10 years of life especially, overtime was a must, and any rare downtime that he had was spent tending to other adult responsibilities. But even beyond that, he was never really a huge sports guy. He took me to my first baseball game with my mom in 1989, but outside of that, the only real sports connection I can think of with him is his being a fan of the Denver Broncos thanks to his time spent living out in Colorado. Most of the kids I grew up with had their sports fandoms decided for them. Familial traditions passed down from one generation to the next. Being untethered, in a sense, allowed me to be a free agent, and it's partly why I have such seemingly random affiliations. By the time I hit double digits, I found myself playing sports more frequently, even if it wasn't fully on my radar yet. I remember fall football games on Abbey Court and the occasional game of basketball, but the turning point wasn't really until I hit junior high school. I realized how important sports was in terms of social currency, nerd alert, and I saw that just by being aware of what was happening day to day across the sports world, I was gaining access to a whole new realm of conversation. Despite being introverted earlier in my life, I was developing into a sociable person, and because of my love of and success with academics, I was finding myself routinely grouped in with the social outcasts. I didn't feel like I belonged there, and once I started to explore sports more, I found myself accepted more frequently by a wider variety of social groups. Don't get me wrong, there were still kids with whom I would never connect, and it wasn't like I was suddenly the prom king, but I was at least being included in discussions that I hadn't been privy to only a few months earlier. 1997 was, without question, the single most pivotal year of my life for a number of reasons. My interest in sports developed into a fervent passion, and I remember watching my first Super Bowl and NBA playoffs that year. It was then that my love of the Miami Heat was solidified, and when I took a much greater interest in actually playing sports. By that point, I had gone from the skinny nerd to the pimple-faced overweight one, and that was also when the bullying reached a peak. The summer of 97 was a relief I can't even begin to describe, and despite high school looming that fall, I actually looked at it as an opportunity to redefine myself. I knew I couldn't survive four more years like the three I had just barely scraped myself through, and so I flung myself headlong into basketball. That summer alone, I was playing more than 30 hours a week, and as the weight melted off and my game improved, I felt that transformation happening in real time. Before long, basketball became my life. 
I wore a jersey and shorts to school every day for an entire year because I knew I would either be stopping at the park on the way home or heading right out the second I walked through the door. It was the primary interest I shared with my two best friends and was a focal point for my one long-term relationship in high school. I had met the girl at the park playing basketball and she wound up playing for her high school team. Most of the kids that I played against played on travel teams and the fact that I could either hang with or outplay them was a huge confidence booster. Still, I hated the fact that I was too scared even then to play on an actual team, and so when our local church started its own rec league, I knew I had to make the leap. We played for two seasons, winning the championship the first year and losing it the second, but it was an experience I knew I would never forget. Despite knowing that I was good enough to play for my high school, I was at a crossroads heading into my junior year. The odds of me getting an athletic scholarship were way, way lower than me earning an academic one, and with that basically being my only way into college, I decided not to try out. I was afraid that the new time constraint with practices and games would negatively impact my studying, and with junior year being the most important one in terms of the college application process, I knew that I was better off focusing instead on school. Or at least that's what I told myself at the time. See, the truth is, it was absolutely a part of the decision-making process, maybe even 99% of it, but it definitely wasn't all of it, because a part of me was still afraid of failing. Whether it was that I thought I might not even make the team, or that I would and then not be able to play, I can't say for sure, but that church team wound up serving as a consolation prize of sorts, a way to assuage a damaged ego and dreams forever deferred. And that's where my kids come into the picture. See, some parents live vicariously through their children, particularly when it comes to sports. I've seen more people than I'd care to admit who are quite clearly trying to attain the glory that eluded them in their own youths. They're exceedingly tough on and demanding of their kids, not because they're invested in their development, but rather because they're afraid of failing again, this time through them. Nothing these children do is ever good enough, and it's all but assured that they'll wind up resenting either their parent, the sport they're in, or both. I don't regret any of the decisions that I've made regarding sports, because I believe they were the right ones at the time. Had my parents forced me to play Little League, it would have driven me even deeper into my shell. And even though part of me wished I would have at least tried out for my high school team, I was able to work more, and I still had plenty of time to devote to the things that I loved. Still, given that part of that decision stemmed from fear, I vowed to encourage my kids to make different choices for themselves when the time would eventually come. I wouldn't force them to do anything they didn't want to, but there's a difference between reticence and refusal. If I thought they were concerned about pursuing something, like I had with Tim in tackle football, then we would discuss it fully so that it would ultimately be an informed decision. Fortunately, all three of my kids are way braver than I ever was, and are far more confident in themselves and their abilities. They're not plagued with a fear of failure or inadequacy, and so they're more inclined to take chances, even if the outcomes aren't guaranteed. Especially if they aren't. They embrace the idea very early on that the only way to fail is not even to try, as I can readily attest to. And try they did. Tim started out with a really basic t-ball program before we found flag football, which was an instant hit. He even participated in a PGA golf event, sinking a 25-foot putt that still blows my mind. Sarah and Jack both did soccer shots at their nursery school, but only Sarah went on to the rec level beyond that. All three of them, much to my relief and surprise, loved basketball above all else, and so that was where we began to focus our efforts. I made it a point not to force basketball onto them, because I didn't want it ever to feel like they were playing to please me, or because they knew I enjoyed it. I wanted it to be organic for them, something they came to on their own. The fact that they all love it as much as they do is a blessing I am incredibly grateful for. Part of that gratitude stems from an inevitable life transition. Every athlete, no matter the sport, reaches a point where they can no longer compete at the level they once did. 
The stakes for me with basketball were, of course, incredibly low, but to have played upwards of 50 hours a week, every week for four years, and then to go to college where it felt like I was spending that time commuting was tough. Something had to give when I started at Baruch, and unfortunately, basketball was one of the first things to go. To be fair, I was focusing on adulthood at that point, attempting to plot out a career path for myself and eventually a family with Heather. We graduated in 05, I started grad school in 06, we got married in 07, had Timmy in 2010, and then we had our own home and a baby girl by 2012. That's a lot of living in a relatively short amount of time, and the raging inferno that once burned inside of me to improve constantly at basketball shifted towards being the best husband and father I could be. Deep down, though, I always knew there might be a chance for that order to arise anew once I had kids, and thankfully it did, albeit in a completely different form. Coaching filled the void that was left behind with my playing days, and it provided me with even more cherished memories. Whether it was full team practices, parent-player scrimmages, or just staying late where it was just me and my kids, coaching afforded me the opportunity to share my passion with my three favorite little ones. I recognized pretty early on, though, that there were limits to what I could contribute to their development as players. Fortunately, a good friend introduced us to skills training, a topic I'll cover in another episode, and I saw instantly that this was what they would each need to maximize their potential. I felt like I could give them a firm foundation to build off of, but ultimately, I knew there would come a point where they would be better suited on other teams and with other coaches. I relished the years that I spent coaching them, and I'm really appreciative that I had the chance during those formative years to give them a great rec experience. Jack definitely got shortchanged because my one season with him was also the one that I spent as the commissioner of the town's local basketball program, and I was coaching not only his team, but Tim's and Sarah's too. Even during that one year, though, it was apparent that they were destined for more competitive levels than I could comfortably coach them at. COVID threw a wrench in our plans, and the uncertainty had me hesitating about what I should do with them next, but thankfully, they all wound up playing travel and AAU in late 2021. Our last go-around with rec basketball came this past summer, when, at times, they were either on the same team or facing off against each other. It was pretty exciting to see them all competing on the court at the same time. Though a part of me was sad to think that both my playing and my coaching days were over so quickly, I discovered that the best really was yet to come. I could never have anticipated the excitement I would have of driving Sarah all the way to Pennsylvania for her first ever AAU game and watch her compete and score in her first meaningful competition. And it got only better from there. See, as a player, the only joy I had was improving and in winning. I was striving constantly to get better to find new self-imposed challenges to conquer and to prove every single time I stepped out onto a court that I was the best player there. As a coach, I wasn't nearly as competitive because my goal shifted. For me, a successful season was one where every kid said that they would love to play basketball again. My focus was on finding a way to make each and every player feel like a valued member of a team and to put them all in positions to succeed wherever I could. That's the beauty of rec sports, and something that I believe is becoming increasingly overlooked or forgotten. It's supposed to be fun. Sure, it can be competitive, but even then the focus should still be on just enjoying the experience. When I ran the program for Hazlitt, I really just continued what the previous commissioner of 30 years had been doing. We had participation medals and a season-ending friendship exhibition game for the younger divisions, but for the older kids, it was competitive rec basketball with playoffs and trophies for only the final two teams. I was fortunate that my team was in a position at the end to play for and ultimately win that trophy but the best part was feeling like I did it the right way. Not only that, but the opposing coach had done it the same way as well. Our league had rules in place regarding playing time, that every single kid had to play two quarters before any other player could play three or more to ensure that coaches weren't leaving their best players in at all times, even in the playoffs. 
It would have been easy for either one of us to leave our star kids in for that entire title game, but we didn't. And there's something to be said for that in a time where parents and coaches are growing increasingly obsessive about the perception of competitive supremacy. Every season, with every basketball team I coached, I kept a running log of not just the quarters played, but the specific quarters played in for each of my boys and girls. The two most important numbers to me each season weren't the game scores or how many points my own kids had. It was how close I could get to perfect parity in terms of both total quarters played and total starts for every kid on the team. And I'm proud to say that, with no exceptions, I achieved that goal every season. It was the same with positions. Each team had an obvious point guard or primary ball handler, but throughout the season, every single kid that I ever coached had the chance to bring the ball up. The way I saw it, their parents were putting the time and effort into getting their kids to practices and games, and taking time out of their own busy nights, holding off dinner or bedtimes to come and watch, sometimes with friends and family in attendance. It cost me nothing to give them all a chance to watch their kids shine, to break out the cameras and cheer for the child that meant the most to them on my team. Back when I was coaching, my attention was 100% on the game at hand. I was focused on ensuring that the kids who needed a little extra help were being supported and placed in the right spots, either to maximize their skills or to minimize any athletic shortcomings. I wasn't concerned with what was happening in the stands because it had no bearing on what I was trying to do. Or at least that's what I thought. I have to say that, for all the years of coaching that I've done, I can count the number of problem players and parents on one hand. I've been very, very lucky to have had not only great kids, but parents who have largely, if not wholly, bought into what I was trying to do. I tried to make it clear that, at 7 and 8 years old, these kids weren't going out there to win some rec basketball scholarship. I viewed it as a long game, something that would be a slow burn but pay dividends down the road. Again, the vast majority of parents seemed to see it this way as well, and were accepting of, if not appreciative, of this approach. In my mind, it was all about building kids' confidence through reliability and repetition. I would often put players in the same position every game until I saw that it began to click. Then and only then would I start to throw more complexity at them. I never wanted them to feel overwhelmed or undervalued. Even if a kid never scored or never even touched the ball on defense, I wanted to be able to look out at the court and see them locked in, to feel like they were truly one of five out there and not just a stick figure meant to stand there while the star players did their thing. While most parents were a pleasure to work with, there were admittedly a few who weren't. They largely fell into two categories. They either grossly overestimated their kids' ability and were frustrated that they weren't being utilized either more prominently or just more frequently on offense. Or, they were meddlers who would try to coach their kids from the sidelines. Now, like I said earlier, my attention was always wholly on the game, and in most cases, the stands were either on the complete other side of the court, or the parents were on the stage and thus largely out of earshot at the smaller schools. With that said, it didn't take much processing power to figure out what was going on when a kid would stop focusing on the game and turn and face their parent in the crowd. While I was obviously aware of this type of thing happening, I had no idea how bad it really was until I traded in my clipboard for my camera. I was appalled at some of the things that were coming out of these adults' mouths, often directed at their own kids. It wasn't like they were screaming obscenities at the opposing players or putting down the other team's coach. More often than not, they were giving their own kids a hard time. And that brings me to the point of today's episode. It's a simple thing, really, and one that I think has profound, far-reaching implications, not just within youth sports, but for society at large. I don't mean for this to sound preachy, and I don't intend to imply that I have any sort of lofty knowledge about anything, but this is something that I've considered at length, and a conclusion that I've reached after countless observations. People need to stop and think before they act. A little quick self-analysis goes a long way, and questioning the potentially unintentional side effects or repercussions of what we say and do 
could save not only ourselves a ton of unnecessary grief and aggravation, but especially our kids too. At the Hazlitt Middle School, there's a huge sign on the wall of the gym that reads something to the effect of, let the players play, let the coaches coach, let the referees ref, and let the parents cheer. It's a pretty common sense thing, and in a way, it's pathetic that such a sign even needs to be there in the first place. What's even worse, though, is how brazenly it gets ignored time and time again. Last fall was my first time sitting in the stands as a spectator for my kids' basketball games, and I realized pretty quickly that I was going to have a hard time biting my tongue. The belly aching over officiating was bad enough, but the criticism that some parents were flinging at their own children was borderline abusive. Being outnumbered and having it really be no business of my own in the first place, I decided that I would be better off keeping my mouth shut. In so doing, I was walking the walk, as it were, demonstrating that it was, in fact, possible to sit and watch a game without shouting criticism or instructions to your kids. Chances are, if you saw me at a game during any of the past few seasons, you saw me recording the game on my phone. There were several reasons for this beyond the obvious. We have a very supportive group of friends and family who are interested in the kids' various athletic pursuits, but for whom it's either not possible or practical to attend the games. Recording them enables me to send over any highlights, thereby keeping them in the loop. But there are other benefits to recording as well. When I'm at one of my kids' games, I'm there to watch them and their team play. I don't treat it like a social event, and I saw pretty early on that there were plenty of other people who felt differently. At nearly every game, there would be several groups of parents complaining about the very topics that, in my opinion, we could and should be escaping simply by being at the gym. The last thing that I wanted to do was get mired in some depressing discussion when I could be enjoying a basketball game, even if it was a tough one for the team I was rooting for. By recording, I was essentially able to tune out that conversation and focus on what I was really there for. An unexpected benefit, too, was that people sometimes changed how they were speaking or what they were talking about when they saw that I was videoing the game. It was almost like a reminder of, oh, hey, maybe we shouldn't be cursing at the refs or complaining about our kids' lack of playing time. There were definitely limits to that benefit, though, which I saw repeatedly throughout the season. The worst offender, by far, was the parent who rode their child as if the fate of the world hung in the balance of the game's outcome. No matter what this player did, it was never good enough, despite the fact that they were arguably the best player on the team. No one scored in double figures as many times as this player did, and they were one of the best, most consistently reliable defenders on the team. And all you would hear, all game, was the parent criticizing this kid for messing up, for not running hard enough, for not playing smart enough. It was so bad that, at one point, the parent actually got kicked out of a game by the referees. I found out after the game that, when the player's teammates went to console them, the kids were told that it was okay because this happens all the time. That same parent is regularly kicked out of another team's games in a different sport. I broke my oath of silence infrequently during the season, but more often than not, I did it for this particular kid, cheering obnoxiously loud for them, not just so that they would hear it, but so that the parent would too. I would say that I don't understand how someone could treat their own kid like that, but I do. It all comes back to that lack of self-awareness. I get it. They probably feel like they're motivating them, and that's fine, but... Imagine if that parent just took a second to put themselves in their kid's shoes. How well would that parent respond at work if their boss took the same approach versus providing constructive criticism mixed with positive feedback? Sure, they want to toughen the kid up, but when they're having a phenomenal game and you can't bring yourself to cheer for them at all, and to stop focusing on what few mistakes they're making, there's something wrong. The one thing that drives me nuts more than anything, though, is parents who shout instructions to their kids, and this is 100% undeniably connected to that stop-and-think thing. I would wager that, in 99% of the cases, it's simply parents getting caught up in the excitement of the game and momentarily forgetting their role in the proceedings. 
Occasionally, though, it goes beyond that when it becomes intentionally subversive. On more than a few occasions, I witnessed parents deliberately demanding their kids to defy the coach's instructions. The sad part is, some of these parents are actually coaches too, which just left me scratching my head. That's not to say that their input wasn't correct from a strategic standpoint, but it still served to undermine the coach, and I felt like they should have known better. I've mentioned several times that my number one priority when coaching was to put my players in the best possible position to succeed. What kills me about parents who give their kids direct instructions during the game is that they're oblivious to the impossible position they're putting their own kids in, especially at younger ages. As parents, one of the first things that we instill in our kids is an innate respect of authority figures. We teach them to listen to whoever is in charge, whether it's us as their parents, or their teachers, coaches, police officers, and so on. Rarely, though, are they forced to choose between authority figures. Usually, there's only one present at a given time, and so they never have to consider any sort of hierarchy. When parents start giving their kids directions during a game, though, they're introducing conflict by forcing their children to make a decision. Do I listen to coach, or do I listen to mom or dad? For one, it's a pretty crappy thing to do to a kid, but for another, it completely disrupts the flow of the game for them and robs them of the opportunity to develop their own understanding in the moment. I can't speak for everyone else, but I have always stressed to my kids the importance of tuning out everything that occurs off the court. Ignore everyone but your coach and your teammates. I would imagine, though, that other parents echo that sentiment only to break it when it suits their own whims. There's also a degree of inborn arrogance that just rubs me the wrong way when a parent decides to tweak a coach's game plan. I'm incredibly particular about the instructions that I give to my players, and I have a reason for every single one. So when a parent says, move closer to the line, or spread out, or go play tighter defense on that kid, it irritates the hell out of me, because they have no idea why the coach put them in that position in the first place. Again, let the coaches coach and let the players play. Obviously, I'm all for shouting encouragement to kids, saying things like, nice shot, or great dribbling. What I can't stand, though, is people shouting things like, shoot, or dribble. I know it's another one of those reactive things, but again, it comes back to taking a look at the larger picture. As a parent in the stands, and just an adult in general, you're privy to far more information than your kid is. For one, you can literally see the entirety of the game playing out before you. So of course you see that trap forming on the weak side, or you see that player standing all by themselves, wide open in the corner. But your kid is actually on the floor, and their perspective is far more limited. You're also sitting comfortably in the stands while they're dealing with the pressure and adrenaline rush of being out on the court. Having kids swiping at the ball, swarming them, all while they're trying to figure out what the best play to make is. For those who haven't played basketball, it can feel like sensory overload, especially early on and especially for players who don't develop as quickly as their peers. You've got, at minimum, nine other kids on the court along with two refs, two coaches, and two benches filled with even more players who were all shouting. The reaction speed necessary to succeed in the sport is measured in milliseconds, and you have to hope that, even if you're thinking quickly, that your body can comply with the commands your brain is sending. It's a highly technical sport that is incredibly demanding in terms of skills, particularly in terms of coordination and multitasking. Your legs are moving, your hands are moving, your eyes are moving, sometimes all in different directions simultaneously. If you don't have the ball, you're trying to anticipate what's going to happen, and if you do have it in your hands, you're trying to assess what the best course of action is. You're scanning the floor to see if any of your teammates are in a more advantageous scoring position than you are. You're watching your primary defender to make sure that they don't take the ball away from you, while also watching any of the other four defenders to see if a double team is coming. There are coaches shouting instructions, and, as I've covered, parents doing the same thing, saying nothing of what's coming your way from your opponents and your teammates. 
for a seven, eight, or nine-year-old kid playing travel basketball, no less, for the very first time, this can be incredibly overwhelming. I hear parents shouting all the time to shoot the ball. Half of them are oblivious to the fact that the kid is out by the three-point line and has exactly zero hope of making it from there with defenders in the area, but the other half fail to consider that the reason the kid isn't shooting in the first place is that they're just not ready yet to make that connection. It can be frustrating to see other players driving the ball to the hoop or making their own space to shoot a jump shot, but your kid is your kid, and they're on their own journey, and they'll develop at their own speed. If they get the ball and they just stand there with it, shouting at them to take an action that they haven't yet coordinated on their own isn't going to help. In fact, all you're doing is adding even more information to an already overloaded brain. Another thing that kills me is when a parent or coach screams at a kid with the ball to pass it to a player who is open. I try never to do this when I'm coaching because, in the vast majority of the cases, it doesn't work out. Instead, what happens is as follows. Someone shouts out that a kid is open, typically by name. What's the first thing that literally every player does except for that kid? They start to look around. So now you've alerted the other team to the fact that someone is wide open. What's the next thing they're going to do? Well, the nearest defender is going to start moving towards that player. But what about the other four? In nearly every instance I've seen, their eyes are on either the kid with the ball or the open player. Now, this has all happened in about the span of a second or two. The kid you were shouting at still has the ball, and they've only just now processed that their teammate is open. You've given them a direct instruction to make the pass, and only now are their synapses firing, and so they pick up the ball and make the pass several seconds too late, and what happens? There are already a horde of kids making a play for it, and in nearly 100% of the instances, it results in a turnover, and that kid walks away feeling like crap because they feel like they've made a mistake. It all comes back to weighing the importance of the specific instance versus the larger picture. I would rather train my players to learn to look for those open players on their own rather than point it out to them. The more connections they can make on their own, the more quickly they learn and the better they play. The same can be said for learning when to shoot and dribble. If you give them the leeway to play, they're going to make mistakes, but that's also how they're going to learn. It's not always a matter of trial and error either. Imagine if you're a plumber trying to learn how to repair a broken toilet or a mechanic working on a car problem. The more you're able to focus and figure it out with minimal oversight, the higher the likelihood you'll retain that information and do a better job the next time. If you have someone standing over your shoulder saying, this part goes there, then that part goes here, then this is the next thing, you'll wind up simply following their instructions without ever really grasping the underlying concepts. And isn't that part of the point, at least with competitive sports, to help our kids learn, to encourage their development rather than focusing on how many points they score or whether or not the team makes the playoffs? And what about us? How much more fun would it be just to be cheering for our kids and their friends instead of getting apoplectic over a missed call or a botched play? Aren't we there in part to be entertained? Some people seem to live and die with every play, even in a wreck basketball game. And it's sad because it doesn't have to be that way. It's easy to blame the behavior on the pandemic, on people losing the ability to behave with restraint in social settings because of a lack of exposure over the past few years. But the sad truth is, that's how it's been for a long, long time and it's getting only worse. But it doesn't have to be that way. It's something that each and every one of us has the ability to change, and it really doesn't take much. We can all set much better examples for our kids just by taking that extra split second to think about what's coming out of our mouths, and whether it's worth even saying in the first place. And that extends well beyond the court in the field of play. We're becoming an id-driven society, and it's both sad and scary to see it all playing out in real time. I can't tell you how many cars I see run the red light at Middle and Pool or how many people flat out blow through the yield signs when they're trying to get onto the parkway. 
They're putting their own wants above everything else, oftentimes at the risk of other people, really for no reason. It comes down to, screw you, this is what I want, what you want doesn't matter. Whether it's as a motorist cutting off other drivers, or a parent yelling at a ref over a call. If we all would just take a second to consider the bigger question, to weigh the risk and the reward, we might make better decisions, or at least different ones, that benefit both ourselves and others. If we learn just to yield, to ignore that pressing need to be right, or to get what we want whenever we want it, then maybe we'd all wind up being happier in the process, all while making life just a little bit easier for everyone else. So the next time you're at a sporting event and you want to shout out instructions to your kid, maybe consider the position you're putting them in if they're on the younger side, or the way it undermines the coach who called the play regardless of their age. If you want to scream at them for making a mistake, try to put yourself in the position that they were just in. At that same age, would you have done it any better or any differently? These coaches, and especially the referees, are doing jobs that the vast majority of people will never volunteer for. And they're people too, taking time out of their lives to, in some way, allow your kid the chance to play a sport and give you the opportunity to cheer for them. It's really that simple. And sure, the refs are earning a wage for their part, and sometimes the coaches are too. But that doesn't give anyone the right to make an already difficult job that much harder. Common sense and common decency are becoming increasingly rarer, but again, it doesn't have to be that way. It starts with each one of us. In every instance, we're making choices. We can choose not to move over when someone's trying to merge, or not to wave and thanks at someone who stops so that we can go. Just like we can choose to cheer instead of criticize our kids, to uplift rather than upbraid them. Of course we want them to play well, and naturally we'll be embarrassed when they don't. But their development isn't a reflection of any parental deficiencies on our part. Their missed shots or dribbling the ball out of bounds off of their foot doesn't sully our family names. It doesn't bring shame to the generations of ancestors who came before us. It's one play in one game that they'll probably never remember. What they will remember, though, is how we make them feel. And for me, I'd much rather my kids and my players look back at their time with me fondly, recalling the way I tried to build them up rather than how I tore them down. It's just a matter of fighting those primal impulses, of taking a second to consider if there's a better way, or if it's worth doing whatever it is that we're about to do in the first place. Sometimes, we need just to yield. Thanks for listening, and have a great day wherever and whenever you are.